Good afternoon. This is Richard Shu, host of Shu Untied Today. I'm very pleased and thrilled to have as my guest Laszlo Bach, who's the former senior vice president at Google, author of Work Rules, and now the CEO of his own startup, Humu. Laszlo, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's fantastic to be here. Well, really appreciate it. Thrilled to have you here. So let me start by asking you, um, tell me a little bit about how you decided while working at Google to even write this book. What kind of, you know, what went through your mind to kind of even decide that, hey, I wanted to, you know, create this book? Uh there were a couple things that led to writing work rules. Uh, one was years ago, the Google sales team asked me to write an article about Google culture. And what I realized in thinking about it was the culture came down to three things, mission, transparency, and voice. And it gave me a little experience writing. It gave me a little experience thinking about culture and putting pen to paper a little bit. So that was ultimately kind of the, the root cause of it. The second thing, though, was um, I had a conversation with someone on a flight, and we were talking about some of the things that not just we did at Google, but I'd learned from other companies, places like Wegmans and uh, other places that actually are amazing places to work without Google's budget. Mm-hmm. And the guy, and we were stuck on a flight for a long time, but he eventually said, you know, you should write a book. And I said, uh, what are you talking about? This stuff's not that interesting. He said, everything you've been saying blows my mind. Take power away from managers. Don't let them make hiring decisions. Um, and then the third thing was... Uh, the company at the time really cared about uh, open sourcing mm. and sharing information for the betterment mm. of the world. And Larry Page was kind enough to to permit me to kind of say, yeah, there's a bunch of people practices and we do them at Google as long as you're not sharing the super most top secret things. Uh, maybe we can do some good. Oh, interesting. Now, did it end up being much more difficult than you thought? I mean, once you started the actual project of creating the book? Some of it was. Um, some of it was pretty straightforward because there were things I'd uh, been talking about and thinking about for a long time. Others, for example, there's a chapter on learning and building a learning organization uh, was incredibly difficult for me to write because not only did I not have as much academic background in how people learn, but I didn't have as clean a theory of the case. Mm. When it came to things like recruiting, I knew, you know, we had studied and decided and determined that, you know, four interviews was the optimal number for a candidate. And there was a lot around that. When I joined Google, I moved the company away from focusing on academic pedigree and test scores because I knew in my gut that was the wrong thing to do and the science bore it out. But when it came to training and learning and leading, I didn't have as clear a theory of the case. So there was a lot more homework and conversation and debate involved in Mm. figuring those out. Mm. Now, the book was obviously wildly successful. Did that surprise you? What what was your expectation about that? Um, I think it surprised everyone except my mother, uh, (laughs) who thinks I can do no wrong. Um, No, it was was a very pleasant surprise. Um, I think the book sold. It's out in 25 languages. It sold over half a million copies. Uh, I donate every penny to charity from the book. Nice. Um, And uh, it's it's just been humbling. And what's been nice is... The number of people who reach out and say, like, hey, I tried this in my company. I'm in an industrial company. I'm at a nonprofit. I'm a teacher. Mm. I've taken some part of it and made work a little better. Mm. Well, what do you think about that? What do you think about about the book that made it so compelling? I mean, is it just, I mean, what, what do you think it was? Uh, I don't know. I, I think I, I got lucky. Um, <laughs> you know, I think uh, I had, a, you know, a great editor, great publisher, a lot of help. Um, I think. I tried to write something when I wrote Work Rules that 
was the kind of book I would want to read, mm-hmm. which had a combination of kind of stories and science and real world experience and and kind of some fun to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you've I know you've seen it, and on the back cover, you you know, there's all these blurbs about oh, this book's so wonderful. And the very last one is from my, one of my daughters, who was five at the time, and it said, "This is a boring book, Annabelle Bach." <laughs> and nice. I think trying to you know put some humanity into it uh, went a long way, mm-hmm. but but I also. What people have told me is that what really resonates is there's very actionable things. So if you, for every part of like the people management process, so if you want to get better at building culture, there's a slice of the book about that. And here's the three things you should do to build a great culture. If you want to get better at training people, here's the five steps to take. If you want to get better at even building an HR organization, Mm -hmm. here's things. So I think people people have told me it's very practical and actionable as well. Tell me about how you came up with the title. It's a very catchy title. I, I was intrigued at how titles come about. <laughs> um, uh, thanks. My my wife named the book. Oh. Uh, she is our namer in chief in, in our house. And um, uh, I, she thought it would be a great... She just literally came up to me and said, it should be called Work Rules. And oh. I said, really? And she said, yeah, because you know, you can, you know, work should be great. It should rule, but also it's the rules of work. And... Um, and uh, and just like it, that, the editor accepted it. it and, and no, no. Well, the the editor actually wanted the publisher um, wanted to make sure Google was featured prominently in the title, mm. and I actually didn't feel super comfortable with that at the time, and, mm. and didn't want to do that in part because it, it's too easy to critique books about Google, particularly written by Google employees, mm-hmm. which I was at the time, as like, oh, it's just PR, or it's this stuff works for Google, it wouldn't work anywhere right, else. Right. And part of what was particularly clever about what my wife came up with was um, it's really a more universal thing. And there's companies of every size, organizations, teams of every size, every culture, every industry um, featured in the book, but also that have drawn from it. So for example, there's uh, there's this beautiful story um, which I, I borrowed and credited to the New York Times um, about a bagel shop in Manhattan, uh, in Brooklyn, actually, called Russ and Daughters. And it was mm-hmm. founded by this guy and run by his daughters. And uh, it's, I think, 100 years old. And there was a gentleman working there uh, who's, I can't remember his full name. It was Sherpa Kenyasha, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's from Nepal. And his job in Nepal as a child had been to literally Sherpa people up Mount Everest. And then, you know, as an adult, he finds himself slicing bagels and locks Mm -hmm. in New York City. Mm -hmm. And he was asked by the journalist who interviewed him, you had this really meaningful job, like helping people see the highest point in the world. Now you're doing this other really mundane thing. Doesn't that feel kind of terrible? And he said, it's all about helping people. Mm. And a big part of the message of the book is that it's not just, here's Google's way of doing it. What we did at Google was we proved the science behind why connecting people to meaning matters, but it's a much broader thing. Mm. And so in my mind, I was I, I very much didn't want a, ah, it's Google's top secrets kind of thing as the, the main headline, and mm. my wife helped me get there. Mm. Did she also come up with the exclamation point? Because I, th- I find it interesting <laughs> that that exclamation point, I think, really changes the whole title you know, was that also part of her idea? Does it? In what, in what way? Well, in the sense of, I don't know, like the whole dynamic, I don't know. It seems like it would have a different flavor if it didn't have an exclamation point. Yeah. But I'm just curious, was that added later or that was part of the original? No, that was all her. The, uh, I mean, you know, children of the 80s, right? So we, you know, we're teenagers in the 80s. So, you know, everything rules. And so ah, got it. that was part of it. Well, every author, I've interviewed a lot of authors on my show. And every author said, yeah, is, you know, writing a book is extremely difficult. Sounds like you had quite a bit of fun writing yours. What would you say? Uh, I loved it. Uh, it was incredibly hard. Um, the process was actually, 
So it's uh, roughly 16 chapters. And so uh, for 16 straight weeks, my goal was just to do a draft of a chapter every week. Mm -hmm. So I'd start writing Saturday morning at 7 a.m. And at 10 o'clock that night, I'd go to bed. And then Sunday, I would just keep going until I was done. And so, you know, I'd work 7 to 10, Saturday and Sunday for 16 straight weeks just to get something on the page. And uh, literally, I'd like be in pajamas the whole weekend. I I wouldn't I wouldn't shower. I wouldn't, you know, my wife was kind enough to like she'd bring me soup. Uh, It was it was really rewarding because I really felt whether I mean, you know, take it for what it's worth. It felt like I was doing something that would be helpful to a lot of people. And that felt good. Well, so tell me, so after you wrote the book, tell me a little bit how then that evolved the idea of starting a company. Obviously, that's something totally different. Tell me a little bit. I'm sure they're related. So tell me the story about how that happened. Yeah, so um, so the book was written in sort of 2014, 2013, um, came out in 2015. 2016, uh, I stepped out of my job as head of people operations at Google after almost 11 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next year in 2017 started uh, Humu. And our mission is uh, to make work better for everyone everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of what happened was... Google was a wonderful place and platform to obviously do good things at Google, Mm -hmm. but also, again, they were kind enough to believe that open sourcing some of the people practice were helpful. And it was, by the way, very brand positive for the company. Um, Whenever there were brand surveys about Google, what drives Google's brand, the number one thing was always they're great to their people. So it was sort of self-interested for the company. Mm -hmm. Um, But eventually I realized, you know, there were 72,000 people at Google. Life was pretty good for them. There's 4 billion other people for whom <laughs> life isn't always that good. And not everyone gets the, you know, all the perks and wonderful things and great mm-hmm. management you get at, mm-hmm. at some of these tech mm-hmm. companies. Um, so I wanted to have broader impact. And together with my co-founders, uh, Wayne Crosby and Dr. Jessica Wisdom, um, we kind of came up with this idea that, and it's embedded in the book. The company is actually, this wasn't by design, but our current product is basically chapters 2 and 12. Mm-hmm. So culture and nudges. Uh, and there's a lot more we do now and we have a much longer product roadmap, but the idea was there's a hundred years of people trying to manage better, right? You go back to, uh, to, you know, Taylor in the early 1900s, trying to figure out how to get assembly lines or Henry Ford and all this kind of thing. Um, and the experience of work still isn't great for most people. Mm. And by the time you're through your career, you're better at managing, you're a better team player, but there's no way to get people really good at that early in their career or consistently. Mm. And people go to MBA programs like I did. People go to you know different kinds of schools and trainings. Companies provide a lot of training. $400 billion a year almost mm. spent globally on corporate mm. training. And work's not better. So this idea we had was, what if we took some of what we learned and actually figured out how to make work better for everyone. And the mechanism we came up with was the nudge. Hmm. This tiny little intervention that, if targeted correctly, doesn't take away choice, but makes it easier for somebody to make a good decision, to hmm. be a better collaborator, partner, manager, what have you. Hmm. And that's what we built our company around. So are you building a technology or you're building a service? Definitely technology. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, my, uh, my dad actually – so I worked in consulting. Uh, my mom had a small business consulting firm. My dad was an engineer. Every, everything my parents did build by the hour. And uh, I feel bad saying this to an attorney, but <laughs> – Former it, attorney. Former attorney. Former attorney. Former, oh, then it's fine. Um, it, it doesn't scale. You know, your impact is limited by how many hours you have in the day. Right. Um, so we have a technology solution. Uh, you, you buy it on a per-person-per-month kind of license. And what we do is we first identify within an organization what behaviors people should change to maximize their happiness, to maximize productivity, to maximize retention, 
innovation and even inclusion. Mm. And then we tell people, here's what we found. And what we find is about 60% of the time, we discover things that people would not have focused on before. Then we use AI-driven nudges, tiny reminder emails, uh, maybe calendar meetings that show up, uh, maybe uh, text messages, Slack messages, what have you, um, to combinations of people to make it easier to show up as a better manager or better team member. And what we find is about 60, so far 61 to 83% of the time, people take action on these nudges, and uh, the benefits are pretty dramatic and substantial. Interesting. Now, did your wife come up with the name Humu or not? <laughs> <laughs> and what's the, origin, what is that, what is, what's the origin of that name? Uh, so there's two parts to the story. She um, she did not, although she drew our first logo. Oh, okay. So she gets credit for that. Yeah. Um, but uh, one is my co-founders and I, we like that the cognates of Humu are human and humor and humble. Mm-hmm. Like it has these nice associations. But the other piece is Wayne Crosby, who's, uh, he was early employee at Amazon and GoDaddy. Then he was in Y Combinator. He was acquired by Google uh, or his company was. And then he was at Google for a decade doing... Uh, enterprise software, uh, social software, and then machine learning AI work. Uh, He and I met five years ago, six years ago now, because he was named one of the best leaders in the company. Mm. The biggest award you could get at Google was called the Great Manager Award. Mm. And uh, every year, 10 or 20 people would get nominated by their peers as rigorous vetting. So Wayne wins it one year. And the award trip that year was in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And I was the executive sponsor. I I was not qualified to win it. and uh, the Hawaiian state fish is the humu humu nuku nuku apu a'a. <laughs> and so humu is a nod to where we met. Oh, interesting. Um, but there's also some really beautiful notions in the Hawaiian culture that we try to respect and incorporate. And, um, you know, we have a number of actual folks who are Hawaiian on the team here and uh, try to be sensitive to that. But uh, that's where it comes from. Now, it sounds like you're also having fun doing the startup. How do you compare that with you know the stuff you've done in the past, writing and being at Google? I mean, how does all that compare? Uh, startup life is great. It's, it's, this is your first startup, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, well, I started, I started a nonprofit when I was in college with a bunch okay. of folks, uh-huh. uh, like a peer counseling thing. But this is the first one where, where I'm getting paid to do it yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and uh, raised money and all this. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, the opportunity for impact is is tremendous. The clarity of direction is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the responsibility is, in a weird way, much bigger and more crushing. Even though, you know, I was on the management team, all these people, what have you. If, you know, I for the first six weeks after we started the company, I woke up at three thirty every single morning, wow. uh, freaking out and stressed out, thinking that you know all these other people have left these amazing opportunities mm-hmm. based on this idea mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we came up with mm-hmm. and if that idea doesn't deliver then they they walked away from amazing things and uh fortunately the the idea has delivered so far um but it's a very different much more personal level of responsibility and i'm assuming within the own you're within your own company you're also implementing a lot of your work rules type stuff i mean you're building the product but i'm assuming internally you're also using a lot of the things that you've written about and learned yeah, so our hiring process, for example, is very similar to what's described in the book. So, you know, we predefine the attributes, people are screened against them, you compare the scores, there's an averaging of those scores. So uh, it works that way. There's a bunch of things we do, though, that aren't in the book. And the benefit of working with Wayne and Jesse is Wayne is, first of all, a better manager, and Jesse is smarter and a better scientist. So they come up with really cool things. So um, we have, for example, a daily stand up where everyone just goes around, talks about what they're going on. Um, it's great for a 
cultural cohesion. It's great for just getting a sense of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have uh, some other things where the science backs us, but are kind of leading edge. So, for example, which I wasn't able to do in my old do- job. So, for example, um, one of our team members uh, is pregnant. So we had to put in a maternity policy. Uh, if you work at Huma, you get a full year of maternity leave. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's something that big companies don't want to do, but right. we could, and the science supports, you know, it and why it's a good idea. Nice. Have you started thinking about writing a second book yet? Is your publisher <laughs> bothering you about that? I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> um, or what do you think? Is that, do you see that in the future? Your future? Um, I'm, I'm pretty busy these days. <laughs> um, but, you know, if, if eventually there's something important to say, yeah, I'd love to put it out there. But uh, the, the day job keeps me pretty busy. Do you still speak about the book or do you give talks anymore? At this point now, you're just pretty much focused on the startup. Uh, no, I periodically do. Um, in fact, I'm giving one in Brazil in just a couple of weeks um, at a big HR conference and management conference. Um, so uh, I still do periodically. And it's really, again, the money's for charity. So it's really, um, it's just about letting people know there's a better way, yeah, yeah. right? Because if you're, if you're trying to build a business, you've, you basically have two choices. You can treat people like disposable cogs and grind through them. And in particular, there's a lot of places in the world where people are so hungry for jobs and work, they'll do anything. You can treat them poorly and just grind through them. And you can make a lot of money doing that, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a better way, which if you, um, if you talk to or read any of the work Zainab Tan at Harvard has done mm-hmm. on good jobs, um, they actually, if you treat people well, they're more productive mm. and they're happier and they stick around longer. One of the things I wrote about was um, a Nike factory, two Nike factories in Mexico. This was a researcher named uh, John Lauk from MIT. Uh, and the women who worked in both of these factories, and it was largely female, largely uneducated workforce, uh, both initially traditionally managed. Uh, and one of them making, uh, the average woman, I think, was making uh, 80 or 90 T-shirts per day. Uh, second factory, the experiment was let the women figure out how to run the thing, Hmm. which they did. So they scheduled their own work. They reconfigured the factory floor, figured out how to prioritize things. And productivity went from 80 or 90 shirts per day to something like 150 shirts per day. Hmm. Um, so huge win in all fronts. So I do occasionally do some speaking, but it's really in the service of telling people there's a better way. There's a better way. What was your childhood dream? Uh, childhood dream. I wanted to be a marine biologist. Oh, okay. So yeah. th- it ended up not coming true, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I, you know, I live in the Bay Area. The ocean's not too far. The Monterey Aquarium is nearby, and it's great. So, Well, Laszlo, thanks so much. It was really, I really appreciate you taking the time. It was a fascinating conversation, and I'd love to check in with you in a few years and see how Huma's doing. I'd love that. Really appreciate the time. This is Richard Shu and Laszlo Bach. Thanks. Thanks.